Today is the celebration of the first Sunday of Advent. And for those of you who uh, maybe come from a background where Advent and the Sundays leading up to Christmas aren't really specifically celebrated, which is actually how I grew up. Before coming to Germany, I hadn't really celebrated in any kind of really thought out way the Sundays leading up to, uh, to Christmas very often. But the, the first Sunday of Advent, each Sunday has a theme around it. And the, first, uh, the theme of the first Sunday of Advent is hope, as uh, Andrea has mentioned several times in prayer. And the first candle is called the prophet's candle because it is referring to the hope that is found in the Old Testament by the prophets as they are expecting the coming Messiah. And hope is kind of one of those words that has to kind of be rethought of in a Christian context. Because I think a lot of people believe that hope means wishful thinking, uh, but it doesn't. And specifically in the Christian content, hope means to be living with an expectation. There is an expectation we have. And it's not an expectation that we might know all the details about. Like, uh, like we don't know all the details of what it means that we are going to be living in Christ or, or in heaven. But there's an expectation this is going to be taking place. And therefore, because we have these expectations, we are able to persevere through times of difficulty. Because we know, we expect, there's going to be something on the other side of that. And this is why people who are hopeless are particularly in a, a place of particular tragedy and in, in not just, you know, kind of physically, but also spiritually and emotionally, kind of in the existential places of hopelessness. Because to be without hope means that there really is nothing to expect. There's nothing to be living for. There's nothing to be looking forward to. There's no, there's no expectation of a future ahead of that person. And this is why hopelessness leads to some severe depression or can lead to people even acting out in very uncaring ways because they don't really expect that there's anything to be living for. So, for example, why should you be kind to people around you unless you're just going to try and manipulate them? Unless you believe that there's something, there's a deeper reason for, for that, that other than just what you're going to get out of it. What do you have to look forward to? What is, why, why should you be a generous person, a giving person, when you're in a place of feeling like, well, what is the hope? What is the expectation? I, I read a recent poll, or I saw a recent poll talked about, uh, and it says that the giving, even though incomes have gone up, and it's from the U.S., so it's from the, my country, even though incomes have gone up, there's such a there's been a, a decrease in the amount of giving to charitable organizations, to churches, to everything. And the people who did the research who asked why was there this drop in giving, a lot of the response they got is people said, well, I don't really see the point. And not just the point in that they don't trust the people they're giving to, which is a big part of it, but also that there's just no expectation. Why should we give? Uh, nothing's getting any better. Nothing's going to be getting any better. Why should we? And so this lack of hope leads to even a lack of generosity on the big scale as well as on the little scale. And you think about your children, people that, you know, why do we have kids? There's a kind of biological drive to have kids, but there's also, I think in all of us, a, a, an expectation or a hope that they are going to be adding to the solutions of humanity's problems, not just adding to the problems. And so we have these things in our lives, but if we don't have hope, then really, 
We can end up living in a place of crushing despair or even destructiveness. But with hope, with a belief that there's something worth living for, with the belief that they can have something out of an expectation, human beings can do some amazing things. I like, I don't know about you, I like to watch documentaries. I'm a history kind of geek, and I like to watch documentaries uh, and people who've done stuff. And one of the ones I watched was about a guy named Ernest Shackleton. Have you ever heard of Ernest Shackleton? He was a Arctic, an Antarctic explorer. Back in the early 1900s, there was a big push towards who's going to be the first person to get to the North Pole and who's going to be the first person to get to the South Pole. And Ernest Shackleton was an Englishman, and he was uh, an, a South Pole explorer. He was trying to get, he wanted to get to the South Pole. And as a result, they went on several expeditions. He, he was on several expeditions to the South Pole. Some of them didn't go so well. Some of them went well. And the one that he's the most famous for is the one that went terribly wrong. He was on a ship called the Endurance. And they went down to the South Pole, and the, and the ocean froze around the ship, and it locked the ship into the ice. And this is actually a picture of the ship, because they had a photographer with them on the, on the expedition. He took several pictures. And the ship was locked into the ice, and it wasn't going anywhere. And so they lived on the ship for a couple months until they realized it was going to get crushed. And it was crushed by the ice, and the ship sank. And they were on the ice. They weren't, they weren't near the shore. They're on the ice. Hundreds of kilometers away from any island. And they had the lifeboats. And they had supplies in the lifeboats. So they began, the crew, there was 47 men. They began to pull the lifeboats with the dogs across the ice. Trying to get to the edge of the ice where they knew it would eventually break off. And they were hoping that the, the ice would break off. And then they would float towards an island that they knew had supplies on it. That's kind of a crazy plan, but it's the only plan they had, right? Because they didn't have radios. They couldn't, couldn't ask for any help. There's no help coming. So they do that. And they get to the edge of the ice. The ice breaks off and begins to float, but it's not going the right direction. And they're on this ice floe for two months, camped out on this ice floe, eating the dogs, eating the, the supplies that they had, and they realized we're not going the right direction and we've got to do something. And as they were drifting along, they knew there was one tiny speck of an island called Elephant Island. They knew there was no supplies there, but there were penguins and seals. So they got into their boats and they went to, they rowed to Elephant Island. And by this time, the men were sick. They were malnutritious. They malnourished. They, uh, they were suffering from scurvy and all the things that you suffer from. And Ernest Shackleton knew that there's no way these guys are going to survive unless they get help. But they didn't have a ship. So he and five guys took one of the lifeboats and they refitted it. And they determined that they were going to try and sail across the stormy Antarctic Ocean to reach a different island that they knew had a whaling station on it. And that's actually a picture of the boat. They got into that boat. And they went across the stormy Antarctic Ocean. It was crazy. And the only thing they had to, to navigate by was a chronometer, which required them being able to see the sun and have the ship be, be steady so they could measure you know, their, their longitude based on the, the sun. And of course, this is a stormy sea. And it was overcast most of the time. 
But after two weeks, they hit the island that they were aiming for. But there was a storm and they couldn't get to the island because of the rocks. They were afraid they'd get smashed against the rocks. So they had to float out there until the storm passed. Then it got to the island where the whaling station was on, but it was on the other side. They landed on the wrong side of the island. And the island was one of these, like, you know, basically just a mountain. And so they had to climb the mountain of the island over the top of it. And only two of them, Ernest Shackleton and one other guy, was fit enough to do it. They took screws from the boat. They screwed them into the bottom of their shoes because the island was ice. And they had to go over the ice to get to the whaling station. But they did it. And the whaling station still exists. It's a ruin now. No one's been there for a long time. But you can still, this whaling station is still there. And they showed up. And as soon as winter was over, a ship was sent to pick up the men. And of the whole thing that took place, out of the 47 men, 44 of them survived. Three of them died basically of natural causes because they're older guys. And it was just very, very difficult what they were going through. But that's, when you think about the amazing story, what it took for these guys, what these guys went through, the fact that 44 of them survived is pretty amazing. So why did these men never give up? Why didn't they just lay down and die? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact this wasn't the first time that Ernest Shackleton had gone through difficult times while exploring the Antarctic. It wasn't the first time that a lot of his crew had gone through it. Now, this particular situation was by far the most difficult that he would ever go through. He actually is famous because of this, even though he always saw it as a failure. And, these, and the men that he was with, they were also pretty tough-minded because they had gone through difficult times before. They had persevered through those times. And by persevering through those difficult times, they had developed within them a sense of confidence, of hope, that there was an expectation that they were equipped to get through this. They were equipped to get through this situation, which I think our minds would just go, this is crazy, from starting out with the fact that it begins on ice in the middle of the ocean. And you know, the scripture talks about this very same thing when it talks about being spiritually tough-minded and having hope. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. See, hope, again, is more than just wishful thinking. It's something that is cultivated within us because we see that Christ comes through for us in difficult times. And when we know that we can trust in God, then we can get through the times. And when the times get tougher, we know that our God is still bigger and we get through it. So see how he sees this? Suffering produces perseverance. That perseverance creates within us a tough-minded Christianity. Not tough in that we're mean and we don't care, but tough in that we're not soft. We're not just a bunch of whiners that curl up into a ball and say, why me, Lord, when things start going, when things become difficult. And by going through this enough times, that trust in God begins to grow to the point that we expect God is going to come through. We expect that he's going to come through. And then when he does, the next time we face a difficult situation, this cycle builds on itself. The hope then allows us to approach suffering without fear. 
It develops within us perseverance. That develops our character. And that character is, again, one of hope, one of expectation that Christ is going to come through for us. And every time that he does, our faith deepens. The suffering and the perseverance teaches us that we can expect to make it to the other side of whatever we're facing. And the more truth, the more often we experience, the more hope that we'll have. And all this goes back to the Messiah, because if there's ever a people or a nation that could say that they'd gone through suffering and perseverance and the development of character and the hope for their future, it would be historically the Jewish people. Now, it's true that some of their sufferings was because of their own actions, due to their own sin. Some of it wasn't. But they have been through a lot over the last several thousand years, and they continue to go through stuff as a people. And we recently read through the book of Amos. And if you remember that the prophet Amos was writing during a time when Israel and the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah, were at their height. Things were looking good for them when he was writing. But he's warning them that things are going to go very bad because of their sinfulness. God was going to use the nations around them to discipline them, to bring them back to a place of having to trust in him instead of trusting in their riches, trusting in their military strength, trusting in their uh, economic strength. And so the northern kingdom of Assyria was conquered. I mean, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And there was no reason for anyone in Israel to expect that they would be anything other than just another one of these countries or cultures or empires that just disappears into history. Because their land was taken, their temple was destroyed, and the best and the brightest of their people were taken into captivity. That's the story you have in the book of Daniel. The best and the brightest of the people from Judah were taken into Babylon to become part of the Babylonian Empire, to use their intelligence, their gifts, their talents to lift up the Babylonian Empire. That's how, that's how they did things. And so Daniel, that whole story is taking place in Babylon. Ezekiel is a prophet taken into captivity into Babylon. But the prophet Amos, before all this went down, gave them a, a word of hope at the very end. And it says this, that after all the punishment is going to come, it says, on that day I'll restore David's fallen tent. I'll repair its broken places. I'll restore its ruins and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will over will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow over all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And why is it that God was promising to restore Israel? Why? What's so special about them that there had to be a promise of restoration? Well, it's because, because from Israel, the Messiah was to come. It was from Israel that salvation would come. Israel had to survive so that the Messiah would come. It's a, it's a very straightforward prophecy out of Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Again, Isaiah was a prophet 
in Judah before the fall of the kingdom of Judah, but he was right at the edge. He saw the storm clouds coming. He survived the attacks of Assyria. Assyria went through the northern kingdom. They also attacked the southern kingdom, but they didn't manage to conquer Jerusalem. And Isaiah speaks this word of prophecy, which gives hope that there's something more coming in spite of everything that was going on around the nation at the time. He says, who has believed our message and in whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he begins to speak this message of prophecy, which as Christians, it is clear to us who he's talking about. But I, but I don't know if it's ironic. I don't know if that's the right word to use. But sadly, among some of our Jewish friends, like the fellow that came and, and visited with us, when we asked him about passages like these, he said, well, we just interpret this differently. And one of the interpretations is that this is referring to the nation of Israel, not a specific person. But you read through and you decide. He grew up before him, being God, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmaries and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. pretty right on the nose, isn't it? About who the Messiah is going to be, what the expectations of the Messiah are going to be. And yet this is written hundreds of years before Christ. And in fact, after the Babylonian exile, the people did come back. It wasn't a full return. The temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't really as it had been. And it's during this time in between the Testaments, between the prophet Malachi and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist that there was silence for 400 years from God. There was no prophet between Malachi and Zechariah, the announce, who, to whom it was announced, the birth of John the Baptist. 
And in that time of silence, it wasn't as though nothing was going on. Israel was still fighting for its life. Uh, this, you had the Maccabean revolt. You had a lot of things going on in the history of Israel. But no direct word from God. But the hope was still there. Because they had words from the, from the prophets. That's why it's called the prophet's candle. That they still had their eyes on something more. And one day, a prophet named Zechariah went into the temple. It was his chance to go into the holiest of places within the temple and to offer incense. It's probably something he was only allowed to do maybe once or twice in his life. And at that point, the silence was broken. We have a little video that illustrates this. Not saying a word. I'm talking complete silence. God was for over 400 years. The mutinous from the creator of the universe. The one who said that Earth is but a footstool to him. Was about to break his silence.
It begins. The ritual becomes radiant, and the faithful become fathers. When God speaks, the heavens rise and the earth bows. Hope grows where hurt was rooted. Time becomes eternity. And he leads us to holy ground that was once hollow. Yes, my friends, God is just getting started. the presence of God coming among us. And that's why John is very clear in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that has been made has been made through him. Nothing was made without him. And then verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that expectation was fulfilled. John the Baptist is called by Christ the last of the prophets, the greatest of the prophets, the prophet's candle. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the state of the world. This is another picture of the endurance. It was a bad situation he was in. And I look at the world, and sometimes I feel kind of maybe the same way he felt, you know, as you watch the ship sink and you camped on the ice and you have to voyage across raging seas and climb the mountains of the things that get thrown in your way, and you wonder, well, where's the hope? Because the world is a broken place. And every time we seem to make progress, right, something else comes along to remind us that any progress we make seems to be temporary, and the brokenness just doesn't go away. And we've, had, we've been having now this war between Russia and Ukraine for over a year now. We're, and in February, we'll be heading into the second year of it. But we haven't been paying a lot of attention to it because of this thing that happened in Israel, where Hamas went in and murdered a bunch of Israeli citizens, and Israel is in the process of retaliation. We see that there's... The, the fear of global warming, the fears of, of political things where we have people who are leaders that lie to us. We have religious leaders that say how much they love us and love God, and yet they line their own pockets. There's a lot of things in the world that would make us think it's just broken beyond repair. And it is, in a sense. Scripture tells us that it's never going to be fully repaired until Christ comes back and actually remakes the whole thing, the new heaven, the new earth. And off the world stage, there's those things that break our hearts personally. Our relationships, sometimes we lose the people we love. Sometimes we see the ending of a dream, the emptiness of broken promises. But for those who are in Christ, 
There is always hope. There's hope for those who have placed their trust in the Lord. There's hope in new lives being born. Some for the first time, which we get to be a part of here at IVCD when we do baby dedications. Some for the second time, as we get to have people baptized after they have received Jesus Christ as their Lord. Out of that barren ground, the new flower blooms. And we will see the sun again, as long as we keep our eyes on the sun. And that's why we sing a new song. That's why we keep our eyes upon Christ, even if they're full of tears sometimes, because we have, we have in our life the one that was longed for by the prophets, and that's Jesus Christ. We are in a blessed place of history that we can say we have what they were longing for. And so as we begin this journey through Advent season, as we end 2023 and head to 2024, may we do so with our eyes firmly on Christ. Because more than ever, and we say this at the end of every year, but it seems like more than ever, the world needs to hear the hope, the expectation they can have in Jesus if they would get their eyes off of the things of the world that are temporary and turn their eyes upon those which are eternal in Jesus Christ. And may you opportunity to share in this season with those who are friends, who are colleagues, who are family members, who in the midst of all the glitter and, and the lights of Christmas, find that desperately empty place in their soul. May you be able to speak into it the words of hope, true hope, hope now and hope eternally of Jesus Christ, the very word of God made flesh, the incarnation who came so that he would bear our sins upon the cross, rise from the grave as victor over sin and death, and be the place in whom we can place our hope. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to worship you, and we thank you for the hope that you have given us, that we live in a place of hope fulfilled in Christ, and yet we still have expectation. We still look forward to what it means to have all of this fully realized. Uh, oftentimes, people, theologians will say we live in a place of already but not yet. Already found righteous because of Christ, but not yet fully living that out. Already assured of victory and eternal life, but not yet living that out. Already found forgiven and yet not yet fully living out what it means to be completely out from under the influence and the participation of sin in our lives. Already, but not yet. But Lord, we thank you that we can say, we can rejoice in the already, and we can look forward with true hope for the not yet. And God, we pray that you would give us the words and the opportunities to share with people around us who don't know or they think they know, but they don't have the hope that they can really live for. They have a more of a wishful thinking than anything else. Wishful thinking that, well, if they stand before God in judgment, that, well, hopefully, wishfully, they were good enough to get by. Or that when the upcoming 2024, they just well, wish it's going to be better, but there's no real true expectation May we present something different, something solid, something substantial, something that is 
of you. God, we pray also for ourselves. It's easy for us as believers to forget that our hope is not just be wishful thinking, but our hope is an expectation that is founded in who you are and what you have already done. And may we look onto that with confidence, that past with confidence, so that we can look forward also to the future with expectation. Help us to be tough-minded. There are some who suffered this year, but persevered. Pray that that character growth will allow them to go through into places of deeper hope. And if, and we know inevitably there's going to be other sufferings that take place within the church body and within our lives that we can lean on one another and learn from one another. That in despite of all sufferings, it produces within us perseverance. That perseverance character and that character hope. And our hope is in you. Because you went through everything. Temptations, suffering, death. And you've gone through something we look forward to. Resurrection, victory, eternal life. So our hope is in you. As we join our lives to you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.